Today's scripture reading is from John 17, 1 through 19. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you have give, that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. This is God's word. You know, as I was preparing for this week, uh, I reflected on the fact that uh, when people are on their deathbeds, they don't have time for tangents. Now, I'll admit that I've never seen anyone in their moment right before death. Close, but never in that moment. But I have seen movies, right? And so have you. And you know when there's a person who's taking their dying breath, you'll inevitably have the one who's not dying and trying to comfort the dying one come around and try to start talking about all the things that they're sorry for and so on. And the person who's dying says what? Some form of no or stop. Let me say my last words. And it's always very clear. It's always very succinct and sometimes dramatic, right? But the the point is, we don't have time for all of that. Let me speak to the heart of the matter. Now, we don't have to have anything that dramatic. We can pull from a more mundane example. What if you're driving along your car and one of two things happens? Either you know that you're about to enter into an area where you're going to lose signal on your cell phone, or you're somewhere where you have no way to charge your phone. You're at 1% 
and you need to tell someone something. You pick up the phone the whole time you're thinking, it's ringing, you're thinking, pick it up, pick it up, pick it up. You've texted, you just want to make sure that they get it. And they pick up the phone and they're about to ask you how you're doing and, and you interrupt them and you say, my phone's about to die, I need to tell you this. And then you tell them. That sense of urgency, that sense of compressed time brings clarity. It brings clarity and it brings succinctness. Now we've been walking through these chapters of the final discourse in John. And Jesus, according to the disciples, has been more clear than they're used to. He's been very succinct. And now, as Ben mentioned, he turns his eyes to heaven to pray. Now, I know that Jesus isn't technically on his deathbed, but he says this is his hour. He is at the end. His time is running out. And he speaks as though this is it, as though he was on his deathbed. He's moving to his death. And so it's, it's with that perspective that we also should look at his prayer. Because it teaches us, what would Jesus pray if he only had a few more moments on earth with his, with his disciples? What would he pray? And whenever we would pay attention to what he would pray, surely it would tell us what he cares about. It would tell us what he wants most deeply. So as I was thinking about how to, how to do these 19 verses, we're going to do the next, uh, the last few verses Eric's going to preach on next week. But in reality, these 19 verses could take, you could meditate on these your whole life. I know you could maybe say that about any passage, but certainly this would be one to choose if, if you were on a desert island and it was a would you rather question, right? This would be a good section of scripture to choose and to dwell in. So how do we give it a treatment that is worthy at all, these 19 verses in the next few minutes together? That's what I was thinking. I mean, I kept thinking, really, it could take a lifetime, and at minimum, I feel as though I need four to six weeks to touch on everything. So I decided, what would we do? Maybe the way that we could look at this is we could look at three clear words that Jesus gives. Now, there are actually more than three clear words, even if I were simply choosing words. And I'm leaving one huge one out to sort of lob a softball to Eric next week. That's for you, man. I'll tell you more about that later. (laughs) But the three words that we're choosing, three clear words that Jesus gives us, the word know, the word keep, and the word sanctify. Know, keep, sanctify. So let's look at the word know first. And the reason clear words matter is because is it not true that when we have clarity of thought, we have a life of clarity? When we have clarity of purpose, a direction, it brings clarity in our life. When we have words of focus, does our life not come into focus? I'm always impressed, overwhelmed almost by Jesus's clarity of mission and purpose and the way in which that drove his life. And so these three words that Jesus prays, first, what we see in the first five verses is Jesus is praying really about himself to the Father. And it's interesting because then verses 6 through 19, he stops praying for himself and he starts praying for his disciples. And you can just look on your worship folder which, which one he spends more time on, praying for himself or praying for others. 
which I find noteworthy. I also find it noteworthy as an aside that Jesus is certain of what's about to happen. So this gets into the question of how do I pray when God is sovereign, when God knows what's going to happen? In Jesus's life, and this is a great example, Jesus knows that the Father knows what's about to happen. Jesus knows what's about to happen, and yet he prays. And so we see an increase of dependence upon God in prayer when we understand that God is in control. So these two realities, I, are, I just couldn't pass up. Now in these first five verses, Jesus is praying to the Father about his ministry. And he's telling the Father, I've accomplished what you've given me to accomplish. And then in verse 3, he says, listen, you've, you've given me authority to give eternal life. He says in verse 2. And in verse 3, he says, and this is eternal life. Now, Jesus is praying in front of his disciples. And so in a sense, this prayer is to his Father, but it's for his disciples so that they could hear it. And Jesus wants to make sure that they know what eternal life is that he has come to give. And he therefore defines it. He says, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The way that eternal life has tended to be talked about in in a lot of churches is mainly as a get-out-of-hell-free card, right? Like, eternal life is this amazing card or token that I get by believing in Jesus that I will get to cash in when I die. And that's eternal life. And it'll start then when I die. And I will live forever. And that's the way we tend to read the phrase eternal life. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? He doesn't say, and this is eternal life, that they may live forever by cashing in their get out of hell free card after they die. That is the way we've come to talk about it because we love to reduce things and especially to reduce things to things that are transactional, simplistic, and about us. Isn't that true? So if we can make Jesus transactional, simplistic, and about us, he will sell way easier. Do you see this? So what does it mean then if eternal life is actually to know God? What does that mean? One commentator, D.A. Carson, says, Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Do you see that? Personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Jesus came to give eternal life. And what he means by that, he tells us, he came so that you and I could have intimate personal knowledge moment by moment in fellowship with the Father. That is eternal life. And that starts now, doesn't it? Yes, it starts now. Everlasting life begins the moment that you trust Jesus and you come to know him and the Father. And so everlasting life starts now and it will increase over time and go on forever. And that means to live the Christian life is to live a life of intimate relation with God, to apprentice Jesus in the way that he lived his life with God. And of course, this knowing grows and matures over time like any relationship. Any relationship takes effort, doesn't it? It takes takes leaning in. One of the things that I'll talk about in premarital training with couples is, uh, I'll take this from C.S. Lewis some and, and, and make it my own, 
But there's this reality of a face-to-face dynamic in marriage or any close relationship. doesn't have to be marriage. Any close relationship. There's a face-to-face reality, but then there's also a side-by-side reality. There's, there's an intimacy where you're sitting together talking about real life, about pains, about struggles, about joys, about desires. But if the relationship only includes face-to-face and not side-by-side mission together, then you're missing something significant in marriage because marriage is about mission together and intimacy with one another, as is any close relationship. And so relationship with God must include an intimate face-to-face reality, a dwelling upon his face, a getting to know him, and an expressing of your deepest desires. And some of us are going to be way better at that than we are going to be the side-by-side dynamic of joining him on mission, which we'll talk about in a minute. But both are crucial. And there's something that happens when you get this intimate knowledge with one another. When you know who someone is, that'd be face-to-face, and what they're about side-by-side. We're doing this together. What are you about? How can we move out together? And I'm just curious, like a check-in in your own marriage, which one are you better at? Face-to-face or side-by-side? I can tell you that in my household, in my marriage, my perception is that it's easier for me to be side-by-side than it is face-to-face, not because I don't enjoy and dearly love the face-to-face interaction, but it's because I want to keep doing things and it's easier to be a roommate and just to, to raise kids and to set goals and to meet goals and to, to, to be a good husband, right? That's good. Provide and protect and all those things. Well, what about intimacy? Some of us are so interested in being faithful to the mission of God that we forget to commune with the God whose mission it is. You're so worried. What does God want me to do with my life? Where is he calling me? Well, do you know him? Do you know him? Are you communing with him? Are you growing in that deep connection? This, by the way, is why our definition of a whole life disciple, the bullseye, has communion with God right at the center because it's where the energy comes from. It's the hub. It's the bullseye. Now, I was in New York with Leah in December, just this past December, and we were walking to go eat. And, you know, if you've been to New York, it's, you basically walk and eat, and you're always walking, and you end up finding a place to eat. And so we were somewhere in between that rhythm of walking and eating and finding a place to eat. And I remember we were, we had just, we were walking past the tree at Rockefeller Center, the Christmas tree. This was in December. And they were still shooting the Today Show. And so there were police officers out there keeping you out from basically heckling. And so I had heard police earlier say, you know, stop people and redirect them. So we're walking across the street and someone says, hey, and I just got the sense they were talking to us. So we turned around and they had like a, like a lanyard on, made them look official. And they, they called us over and I thought, what in the world? I'm just crossing the street. And so this guy pulls us in and uh, he's basically raising money for a charity in New York City and so we're talking to him, we're asking about the charity, and he quickly says, wouldn't you want to give to this good cause? And I said, maybe. And he said, Don't you believe, do you believe in karma? And I said, no. <laughs> and he, he said, you don't believe in karma? And I said, no. <laughs> and he said, are you a Jesus follower? That's what he said. He didn't say a Christian He said, are you a Jesus follower? And I said, yes. 
And he proceeded to tell me all the things that Jesus actually meant when he said certain things. And we're listening to him, and, and I quickly went from confused by his, of course, bad theology and bad hermeneutics, but, but it was way different than that. For the most poignant time in my life, as this man was really passionately trying to convince me that I didn't know Jesus, I was so hurt and so moved that I didn't know what to say. And that's rare. I didn't know what to say. And he could tell that we weren't saying much. And he said, you guys seem very open. And I thought, wow, I feel very confused. That's how I feel. I don't know how I seem. So I eventually got my, my, my sort of legs underneath me and, and said some things to him and challenged him. And then we moved on. And over lunch, I was still very affected by this. And I told Leah, I said, finally the words came to me. And I said, the reason I'm so affected by this is because I know Jesus and that's not Jesus. And it was one of those moments where I realized it's true. I don't know. I don't just know things about him. I just don't know things that he said. I know him. I know him. And in the same way that he was trying to tell me Jesus was a certain way, it was as though he were saying to me, you see this woman right here next to you? Her name's not Leah. And when she says she loves you, I know you thought that that meant she loves only you, but actually she loves many men like you. I mean, that would have been ridiculous. I mean, who are you trying to tell me, first of all, her name's not Leah and that she doesn't love me. This is my wife. It was like that and maybe worse, how I felt. And so when I come to a verse like this, a word know, so simple, that eternal life is to know him. I understood this verse a little more in December of 2018. You see, when Jesus comes to do the work that the Father has given him, and he's praying to the Father. He's doing so because God can be known, he wants to be known, and Jesus is making him known. Jesus has made him known. That's what Jesus is saying in verses 1 through 5. Do you know that he can be known like that? Do you experience him like that? Do you know him? Are you increasingly knowing him like that? Now, of course, this grows over time. I remember reading the, a book when I first became a Christian, a classic called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And interestingly, there's a similar story in the introduction to Knowing God where uh, a professor is challenged by another academic on his understanding of the Bible. And this professor says, I know that that's not right because I know God. Now, I remember reading that when I first became a Christian and thinking, I have no idea what that would be like. I mean, how do you know God like that? And it dawned on me, oh, over time, I've grown in this relationship where I now get it in a way that I couldn't have gotten it then. So you see, this is a lifelong journey. But my question to you would be, when you pray, and of course, I'm I'm not saying do you pray, I'm saying when you pray, are you praying to enjoy God and know him for who he is as well as 
asking him for what you need? Are you asking God who he is and to to share with you increasingly who he is that you could experience it? Or do you only ask for the things that you need? I'm not saying that it's either or. I'm saying it's both. Do you listen to his word and treasure it and meditate on it? But that would lead you to relying on it. Do you rely on the word of God for your very life? For your very knowing God? Again, this is why communion is at the center of whole life discipleship. It's because eternal life is knowing God intimately, day by day, walking with him, and we do it together. And we do it together. So that's the first word of clarity Jesus gives us in this prayer, is eternal life is to know God. He wants you to know this in his final prayer as he's praying this for his disciples. The next word, the clear word that Jesus gives is keep. And this is in verse 10, 12, and 15. So Jesus goes on in the prayer in verse 6. And he gets down as he's telling the Father that he's manifested him to these disciples. But now he's going back to the Father. He prays that the Father would keep them. Look with me in verse 10. All mine are yours and yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father. Now, I wish I could spend more time on this. This is the only time in the entire Bible that the Father, the Father is uh, referred to in this way. Holy Father. It's the only place. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me. That's verse 10, verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them. In your name, which you have given to me. And in verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So, this is obviously a big deal to Jesus. He wants these disciples to be kept. That must mean that the dangers of the world and the evil one are real and urgent and not hypothetical. These are real dangers that they must be kept from. These are not hypothetical dangers, hypothetical temptations. These are real dangers. Now, what does it mean to keep them in his name? Basically, what he's asking God to do is to keep his disciples in firm commitment to the Father. He's praying for their faithful allegiance to God and his purposes. That's what it means to be kept in his name. God, keep them in allegiance to your purposes. Do not let them stray. Do not let the evil one tempt them away. Let them stay committed to you, just like I stayed committed to you. Because in that commitment comes this beautiful relationship and unity and oneness. And that's what he's praying for them. And the reason Jesus must pray this for his disciples is because disciples, them and us, live in a world that is in constant threat of undercutting our allegiance to the Lord. Constant threat. So why then does Jesus leave his disciples in a dangerous situation? Why doesn't Jesus take them out? Why doesn't Jesus remove them? Don't you and I live our lives like that? Don't you and I raise our kids like that? Don't you and I protect our friends like that? Remove them, control the situation, Bring about safety at all costs. That's what I do. 
That's what I do. So I thought, why is Jesus saying this? Why is Jesus keeping them? Uh, why is he keeping them in the world, putting them in harm's way, and then telling the Father, keep them from the bombs that are going to go off around them? Why does he do this? Jesus makes clear in verse 15 that he's not asking the Father to take them out of the world. You see that? I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Because, just to be clear to the, to the Father and to the disciples, keep them from danger. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your name. Well, one way to do that would be take them out of the world. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 I... I to be clear, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You see, the followers of Jesus are permitted, this is D.A. Carson, are permitted neither the luxury of compromise with the world, right? That's one danger. That's one temptation to compromise in the world when we're under pressure, the reason that's bad is because the world is under the devil's power, Jesus tells us. The evil, the, the, the evil one rules this world. So we cannot compromise, but he also doesn't call his people to the safety of disengagement. Wouldn't that be safer to say, well, if you're going to keep them in the world, at least make them huddle up and protect them from the world. But that's not possible either. The Christian pilgrimage is inherently perilous. The safety that only God himself can provide is the safety that we need. You see, the goal is not safety in the Christian life if safety is defined as comfort and control. And that's the second clear word that Jesus is saying. I need you to keep them in the world, not from the world. I need you to keep them while they're engaged in this perilous pilgrimage. When they're being attacked by their own sinfulness, by the evil one and by the world around them. I need you to keep them, Father, just as I did. Protect them, guard them in your name, by your power. Keep them. I'm reminded of the obvious, at least to me, illustration in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When course, Susan, I think it was Susan and Lucy. I didn't fact check this. Some of you hardcore people are going to throw up in your mouth if I get this wrong. I get this. But I think it was Susan and Lucy, and they're trying to figure out the lion, which by now is clearly to, a, to any six-year-old who reads the book, Jesus, right? It's like Jesus. This is, this is, this is um, Aslan. So they're trying to figure out if they can trust him and what he's all about. And of course, they ask the beaver, they say, um, is the lion good? And what does he say? They say, is he safe? Sorry, there you go. You got me. Is the lion safe? And he says, no, he is not safe, but he is good. Well, of course, safety would mean you, might, you won't get hurt. He will keep you from engaging pain or discouragement. But no, he'll keep you in the midst of it. He'll grow you through it. As you experience the fire, your dross will be burned away is another image that is used in the New Testament. And you will become more pure. 
Leslie Newbegin says this. He says, the church is not meant to call men and women out of the world into a safe religious enclave, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. Now you need to know this is why we set up environments at New City to gather you in. We gather to be formed in public worship. We gather to be formed in Christian education. We gather to be formed in community groups. We gather to be formed in formation circles for the sake of sending you back into your callings as God's redemptive agents. That's why we do this. That's, why, that's what we're about. Listen, I don't, we, I said this again, but I, I need to keep saying this. We don't want or need anything from you. I want this for you. I want you to experience the formation and life of God, of what it's like to grow in him, to know him, to be gathered together, to be formed into Christ's likeness, to know him increasingly, to understand that even though it's painful and confusing, that is life, that he is keeping you and that he's for you and that he's growing you and that he's changing you. And then he wants to send you back into your office onto the floor of the hospital that you work. He wants to send you in that conversation with your four-year-old when they're fighting you like they're an attorney. And he wants you to look at them. He wants you to get down on their level, look them in the eye. And he wants you to, to speak love to them. And he wants you to tell them the truth. And he wants you to shape them. He wants to send you into that relationship with your best friend who might be your roommate and to say, Listen, I know that you are hurting, but God loves you. And let me tell you why. Let me, let me tell you how we know that. Let me tell you what I see in you. Let me tell you what I see him doing in your life. I know you can't see it, but I can see it. The way we get eyes to do this, the way we get a heart and desires that form us into this type of person is gathering together by the spirit to be formed into those types of people. And that's only possible because the Father keeps you. He keeps you wanting that. He keeps you desiring that. He keeps you coming back. So Jesus wants us to experience the trustworthiness of the Father as he did and as he was kept. He's saying, keep them like you kept me, like I kept them. In the midst of this life, keep them. And the third word then is, in verse 17, sanctify. So know, keep, third word of clarity in this prayer, sanctify. Verse 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. You see, to sanctify is to make holy or to set apart. That's what the word is. And more particularly, it's to be set apart for a specific purpose. So the only reason a thing is set apart is because you have a unique purpose for that thing. Otherwise, why do you set it apart? No, I keep this thing over here because I have a specific use for it. That's why we do it. That's why we set things apart and that's what holiness is. So the sanctification of a Christian, we'll hear this term. And it's true when we say it's a lifelong process and it's true that it involves a relational component, right? Our relation to the world and our relation to God changes and transforms and becomes more whole as we become more holy. And there's also a moral component, which we're used to, 
which is that our attitudes, our thoughts, and our actions increasingly come in line with God's will. This happens as we're set apart and we're made holy. But sometimes we can make that journey, that process, as an end in itself. And we make holiness a a church thing for us when it's really to the glory of God for the mission of God. That's why he wants us set apart. That's why he wants us to become more holy. D.A. Carson again says, in John's gospel, sanctification is always for mission. That's a strong statement. Sanctification is always for mission. Read the gospel of John, and I think you'll agree. The whole gospel of John is about Jesus as the sent one on a specific mission, gathering a people for his specific mission and sending them out. And all of that is for mission. And we see that our verses 17 through 19 are closely connected with what I just talked about in how God keeps us. And that is that the clear reason Jesus wants his disciples in the world is because he has a mission for them. He wants us to pursue this life that we've received through the gift of his life, which in John we've seen this year that it's abundant life, it's thirst-quenching life, it's satisfying life, it's purpose-filled life, and it's God-glorifying life. He wants us to pursue that life. That is holiness, by the way. That's what holiness is. If you, if you have like a, if you have a boring view of holiness, then you have the wrong view. I mean, look with me in verse 13. But I'm now coming to you and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Do you think holiness is about something besides your joy or the joy of the world through you? No, holiness and mission go together. Holiness, joy, and mission are all together. And that's a beautiful thing. So then the question is, why do we so often refuse it then? Why do we so often push it away? Why do we so often think that the good life is to be found somewhere else than walking with God, than obeying his word? Well, I don't have a succinct answer for you, but I know that it's your experience. I know you experience at least this. Why do I keep walking away from what Jesus said would lead me to the good life? Why do I keep searching when he said he's the answer? Well, this I do know, that Jesus wasn't surprised by this, and the Father wasn't surprised by this. You see, the Father and the Son want this life, this holy life, this sanctified life for all of us who believe. And they want it for us so much that the Father sends the Son to do his mission work on the cross that you and I may receive the life that we don't deserve. You see, our participation in the mission of God is not based on our usefulness or our record, but on God's commitment to our joy. God is committed to our joy. He's he's committed to our joy because our joy is going to be found in relation to him. And when you're in relation with the Father and the Son, you start to love the mission of the Father and the Son. And the thing you want most is to join that mission. Just like a child wants to join their parents in what they love to do. That's how this works. So it's Jesus' consecrating work. That's what he says. For their sake, I consecrate myself. By the way, consecrate is the same word as sanctify. But they translate it differently so as not to confuse us. And for their sake, I sanctify myself or I 
set myself apart or I take up my unique mission that you've given me, whatever. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be set apart, that they also might be sanctified, that they also may take up their mission that you've given them. You see, it's, it's this consecrating work that Jesus has done that secures the power to keep you. And it's this consecrating work on the cross that secures the path to knowing God. And the reason that you can be kept and know God is because on the cross, Jesus takes away the greatest weapon the evil one had against us. Protect them from the evil one, Father. What is the weapon that he had to accuse you of sin? Because you do sin and I do sin. And yet Jesus on the cross removes the greatest weapon the evil one had. The accuser can no longer accuse us because Jesus has taken on our punishment. The death of Jesus has removed all obstacles to fellowship with God. And so as Jesus is praying for us to embrace this life, as he's praying for us to walk out this life, he gives us three clear words that he prayed. Eternal life is knowing God moment by moment. Eternal life is possible because the Father will keep you in your allegiance to him, even when you're prone to run. And you will have purpose in this relationship because you've been set apart because of my consecrating work on your behalf on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now asking that you would work these three clear words into our life that they would bring clarity to our day today, to our morning tomorrow, to our life this week. Reorder our desires based around these three clear words. We can so easily be confused by our own sinful desires. So help redirect our sinful desires to their true desire, which is found in you. Help us discern other places we run for life and help us turn back to you. And would you keep us, Father? And would you increasingly consecrate us to know you and to join you on this mission you've given us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.